Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 104. Today's big Bible question, who is the Antichrist or man of lawlessness or son of perdition? So happy Easter Eve, friends. Whether you celebrate Easter or not, do allow me to prod you and urge you to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus this Sunday and every Sunday. Uh, I guess really every day. Our celebration of the resurrection in many churches is probably going to be muted in the sense that most of us won't physically be together, but I have resolved to make my proclamation of the resurrection as loud as possible, and I hope you join with me. Our family's even decorated outside this year, decorated in quotes a little bit, for maybe the first time ever, and I'm not talking about bunnies and Easter eggs and that kind of thing, but with messages written in chalk. Uh, about the resurrection, and I've got one posted on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, if you want to sort of come check those out. My kids and my wife did a really cool job of painting a mosaic cross on our driveway with the words, He is risen. We want to spread that message to our neighbors, uh, and we're planning on doing that more and more. We live in a really a kind of a walkie neighborhood with people that, that go by the house all the time, and I'm planning to have a table out front with uh, free books on the resurrection, Uh, One of my books I've written, I've got a case of called Easter Factor Fiction. So, I mean, just all of us Christians who follow Jesus right now in the midst of this pandemic, let's broadcast the hope of the resurrection to our neighbors and to our friends and to people on social media. want to give a shout out to Pradeep Kumar, who left an interesting comment on the BibleReadingPodcast.com site yesterday. He says, Dear sir, please explain what end times are and how we can save ourselves from this dire consequences. Thanking you, yours sincerely, Pradeep Kumar. Well, Pradeep, I have good news for you. Today, we are indeed talking about the end times and salvation from its dire consequences through Jesus, the Savior and Deliverer. Our focus passage today is actually mostly based on yesterday's reading, uh, which was split into a two-parter as I'm trying to keep the... uh, podcast from going over 30 minutes too often, although I'm afraid we're going to go a little deep today. Uh, But uh, we do sort of address the issue of the end times at least a tiny bit, maybe, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, where it says, the Lord is faithful, he will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. Now, our Bible readings for the other passages today include Leviticus 15, which is uh, on bodily discharges. And as a chapter, I don't think I would have been able to read through fully in sixth grade or seventh or eighth or maybe even further than that without losing it. Also, we're going to be reading Psalm 18, Proverbs 29, and the aforementioned Second Thessalonians 3 passage. Uh, I'm ch- like I said, I'm cheating a little bit, but the focus question is mostly derived from yesterday's reading of Second Thessalonians 2. And the pertinent verses are 3 through 10, which says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this, and you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders 
and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. So, to quickly discuss what we, uh, summarize what we discussed yesterday, Paul is telling the Thessalonians church, and us by extension, that though we may have heard about rumors that Jesus had come back, or though they heard those rumors, to not be alarmed because he hasn't returned at the time of Paul's writing that letter, and that two very noticeable and important things would have to happen before Jesus returned. Those two things that Paul mentions in this passage are the apostasy or rebellion we discussed yesterday and the revealing of the man of lawlessness that we are going to discuss today. Now, before we go too deep into talking about that individual, I do want to talk a little bit about a practical implication of what Paul is saying here. One way to read this passage is to say that there's no way whatsoever that Jesus' return is imminent. That means it could happen at any moment because the apostasy hasn't happened and the lawless man hasn't been revealed. The problem with that statement is that Jesus taught his return would be a bit of a surprise, actually a big surprise even to believers, and that we wouldn't know when it would be. And the possibility exists, therefore, that the man of lawlessness has already been revealed. Now, I doubt he's going to have some sort of tattoo on his head that tells us exactly who he is. And the possibility is that the apostasy Paul has spoken of might have already happened or be happening. The Western church has seen a remarkable amount of professing believers turn away in the last decade or so. Could that be the apostasy? I don't think so, but it could be. The point being that the return of Jesus still could be imminent, and it's possible we're missing some of these signs. Now, my favorite theologian is a guy named Wayne Wayne Grudem, and he addresses this very issue in his Systematic Theology book when he quotes a number of Bible passages and discusses the imminence of the return of Jesus. So let's let's go to Grudem real quick. First Peter four seven, the end of all things at hand is at hand. Second Peter three ten, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and all that works that are upon it will be burned up. Revelation one three, the time is near. Revelation twenty two seven, behold, I am coming soon. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. Revelation 22.20 He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, what do we say to these passages? If there were no passages in the New Testament about signs that would precede Jesus' return, says Grudem, we would probably conclude from the passages just quoted that Jesus could come at any moment. In this sense, we can say that the return of Christ is imminent. It would seem to blunt the force of the commands to be ready and to watch if there was a reason to think that Christ would not come soon. And he skips skipping a little bit. He says, except for the spectacular signs in the heavens that is foretold in the scripture, it is unlikely but possible that these other signs have already been fulfilled. Moreover, the only sign that seems certainly to not have occurred, which is the darkening of the sun and moon and the falling of the stars, could occur within the space of a few moments. And therefore, it seems appropriate to say that Christ could now return at any hour of the day or night. It is therefore unlikely, but certainly possible, says Grudem, that Christ could return at any time. But does this position do justice to the warnings that we should be ready and that Christ is coming at a time we do not expect? Is it possible to be ready for something that we think is unlikely to happen in the near future? Certainly it is. Everyone who wears a seatbelt when driving or purchases auto insurance gets ready for an event he or she thinks to be unlikely. 
In a similar way, it seems possible to take seriously the warnings that Jesus could come when we are not expecting him, and nonetheless to say that the signs preceding his coming will probably yet occur in the future. This position has positive spiritual benefits as we seek to live the Christian life in the midst of a rapidly changing world. In the ebb and flow of world history, we see from time to time events that could be the final fulfillment of some of these signs. I'll pause here and just say that Grudem wrote this in the early 90s, uh, so he's not talking about the coronavirus, but he could be. He continues, They happen and then they fade away. During the blackest days of World War II, it seemed very likely that Hitler was the Antichrist. During times of persecution against the church, it can seem more likely that Christians are in the middle of the Great Tribulation. When we hear of earthquakes and famines and wars, it makes us wonder if the coming of Christ might not be near. Then these events fade into the background and world leaders pass off the scene. And the tide of events leading to the end of the ages seems to have receded for a time. Then, once again, a new wave of events will break on the world scene, and once again, our expectation of Christ's return is increased. With each successive wave of events, we do not know which one will be the last. And this is good, because God does not intend us to know. He simply wants us to continue to long for Christ's return and to expect that it could occur at any time. It is spiritually unhealthy for us to say that we know that these signs have not occurred, and it seems to stretch the bounds of credible interpretation to say that we know that these signs have occurred. But it seems to fit exactly in the middle of the New Testament approach toward Christ's return to say that we do not know with certainty if these events have occurred. Responsible exegesis, or interpretation of what the Bible says, and expectation of Christ's sudden return, and a measure of humility in our understanding are all three preserved in this position. So, I wholeheartedly agree with Grudem. It does not appear that the events foretold in Scripture to happen before the return of Jesus have happened, but I could be mistaken, and so could everybody else. And Jesus commanded us to be alert, ready, and working according to the Master's will, so that he would bless us when he returns. So that is what I want to be about the business of doing. So, let's talk about the man of lawlessness. Who in the world is this referring to? As Grudem mentioned, many guesses have been made over the years as to who it could be. Napoleon, Nero, Nikolai, Carpathia, and many others. Thus far, all those guesses have been mostly wrong, but John does tell us that there will be many antichrists in 1 John 2.18. So back to Grudem for more more on the man of lawlessness or antichrist. And he says, many attempts have been made throughout history to identify the man of lawlessness or the antichrist with historical figures who had great authority and brought havoc and devastation among people on the earth. The ancient Roman emperors Nero and Domitian, both of whom severely persecuted Christians, were thought by many to be the Antichrist. Many Roman emperors, including these two, claimed deity for themselves and demanded to be worshipped. In more recent times, Hitler was commonly thought to be Antichrist, as was Joseph Stalin. On the other hand, many Protestants since the Reformation, especially those who were persecuted by the Catholic Church, have thought that one or another of the popes was Antichrist. But all of these identifications have proved false, and it's likely that a yet worse man of lawlessness will arise on the world scene and bring unparalleled suffering and persecution only to be destroyed by Jesus when he comes again. But the evil perpetrated by many of these other rulers has been so great that, at least while they were in power, it would have been difficult to be certain that the man of lawlessness mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2 has not yet appeared. 
So I agree with Grudem in linking the man of lawlessness with the Antichrist. There's honestly a fair amount of debate, a lot of debate about this whole topic. So I'm going to sort of attempt to steer a middle course here and avoid big claims. That said, I believe that the man of lawlessness is probably the individual that Daniel speaks of in Daniel 7 and 8. So Daniel 7 says, I'm sorry, Daniel 8 verse 23 says, Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king skilled in intrigue will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be broken not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Well, you're not the only one, Daniel. And I think in a very real sense that the little horn that Daniel is speaking of in chapter 8 is a reference to the real-life historical ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, but in the same dual-fulfillment sense of prophecy we see in lots of Bible passages like Isaiah 7-9, through 9, for instance, this little horn will prophecy will be partially fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, but will be most fulfilled in a future ruler that will be the ultimate Antichrist that really will have the power to stand up against the Prince of Princes, which Antiochus Epiphanes most certainly did not. This ruler seems to, I think, I think, be again referenced in Daniel 9, and also by Jesus in Matthew 24. But I want to be really clear, it's possible that there are multiple, as we're going to talk about in a minute, beasts, antichrists, etc. And it's difficult to know if the prophecies of the Bible are talking about one big bad antichrist and, and beast, or multiple ones, and I just want to be careful here. So Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 15, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see, here's the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets, plural, will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out, or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, that passage seems to indicate that there might be more than one of these active and powerful antichrists, with perhaps one of them being specifically the one spoken of in Second Thessalonians and Daniel and other books. And to be clear, the Daniel passages 
might be referring to one particular end times ruler or might be referring to several. And it's just honestly kind of hard to tell. Maybe I'm not clever enough. Some people think they completely have this thing understood and down pat. I'm a little suspicious of that, but you know, like I said, maybe I'm just not clever enough. The book of Revelation, as you might expect, also speaks of this individual, and like Daniel, Matthew 24, 1 John, and other books that speak about the man of lawlessness slash beast slash antichrist, seems to indicate that there might be several active antichrists going around. So for instance, Revelation 13, and my goodness, I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter Um, don't worry though, I'm not going to explain the whole chapter. I'm just going to read it. And it says this, verse one, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads and with 10 diadems, like a crown thing on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne in great authority. Pause for a second there. The dragon is Satan in the book of Revelation. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So, After reading all of that, I'm sure that things are just as clear as they possibly could be for you, and you don't really need me to explain everything. Okay, I'm just sort of kidding. I think after reading all of that, things at the moment are as clear as mud for you and me both. Do keep in mind, this is the Bible reading podcast you are listening to, and not the Bible answers podcast or the Bible know-it-all podcast. 
I guess I'm sort of kidding, but ultimately, as we discussed earlier these, this week, some of these deep, deep mysteries of the Bible, especially about eschatology in the last days, they're really not meant to be known yet, no matter how hard we try or how clever we are. I believe they will become progressively clearer to the church and believers alive during the generation of Christ's return, because that will be important information to them at the time. But honestly, it hasn't been super important for the church in the past few hundred years to know the answers to all of these last days questions because they weren't the generation that would live to see the return of Jesus. I'm not saying that parts of the Bible are not important. I'm saying that details about the last days that may be divine from Scripture wasn't particularly important for the church in the 1300s because they were at least 700 years away from the return of Jesus. I hope that makes sense. I do believe the nearer we get to the generation of the return of Jesus, the clearer the Bible teachings will become and the more things will make sense. So many people have asked me, including my own kids, several of them, if the coronavirus pandemic now going on means the return of Jesus is closer. I tell them maybe. Probably not, with a shrug of my shoulders, but, you know, maybe. I tell him I've got an eyebrow raised halfway up my uh, left eye, and my Bible radar is turned up a little bit higher than normal, but I don't, I don't know, I don't think so. So who is the man of lawlessness or Antichrist? Of course, I hate to disappoint you. I hope you're not shocked. I don't know. He will be powerful. He will be a man of guile and intelligence. He will have great power and an ability to deceive. He will be extremely clever. It appears that he will be empowered by Satan, and he will have the ability to possibly, if I'm reading Daniel right, stand against the Archangel Michael in terms of power, which is massive amounts of power. That obviously won't be from human power. It will be from satanic power. He will wage war on true followers of Jesus, the saints, and he will have great success, according to the Bible, for a time in that war. So back to Pradeep's question at the beginning. How can we save ourselves from this dire situation? And the humbling and honestly kind of scary answer is we can't. We don't have the power to stand up against the enemies of the last days, no matter how many of them there are. We don't have the power. Uh, But that doesn't mean all hope is lost. For those who are in Christ, saved by grace through faith, having believed in their heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead and confessed and professed those things with their words, true Christians will be delivered and saved by God and by the return of Jesus. So we see it in Daniel 7 where uh, in verse 21 he says, As I looked, this horn which I think is the beast or the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, made war with the saints and prevailed over them. In other words, he was winning. The score was bad. It was looking bad for the church team, the Jesus team, until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So ultimately, deliverance doesn't come from our own power. It comes from the Ancient of Days and his power. But in a sense, in a small sense, we're not without weapons of our warfare in this battle, which are mighty in God, says Paul, to the pulling down of strongholds. Among those weapons that we have as 
true followers of Jesus that are washed in his sacrifice is the fact that the enemy has no hold on us and no ability to eternally wound us. No matter what he does to us, we are secure in Christ. No matter what he does to us, that it might be bad, but we are secure eternally in Christ. We also have the earth-shaking power of our testimony and proclamation of the gospel. So Revelation 12.10 puts it like this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the saints, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So I say to you listeners to this podcast, Look to Jesus to be saved. Look to Jesus and be saved. Trusting in him, believing that he died on the cross for you, believing that God raised him from the dead and professing those things with your mouth and you will be saved. And all the earth, we should, all of us who are in Christ, we can look to Jesus, be saved and rest in his salvation and his power and his soon return in which all who have trusted in him will not be put to shame, but will be delivered and redeemed forever. Amen. And that gets us to Leviticus chapter 15. Verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When any man has a discharge from his member, he is unclean. This is uncleanness of his discharge. Whether his member secretes the discharge or retains it, he is unclean. All the days that his member secretes or retains anything because of his discharge, he is unclean. Any bed the man with a discharge lies on will be unclean, and any furniture he sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches his bed is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. Whoever sits on furniture that the man with a discharge was sitting on is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. Whoever touches the body of the man with a discharge is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. If the man with a discharge spits on anyone who is clean, he is to wash his clothes and bathe with water and will remain unclean until evening. Any saddle the man with a discharge rides on will be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him will be unclean until evening, and whoever carries such things is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. If the man with a discharge touches anyone without first rinsing his hands in water, the person who was touched is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. Any clay pot that the man with a discharge touches must be broken, while any, any wooden utensil is to be rinsed with water. When the man with a discharge has been cured of it, he is to count seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, and bathe his body in fresh water. He will be clean. He must take two turtle doves or two young pigeons on the eighth day, come before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest. The priest is to sacrifice them. One is a sin offering, and the other is a burnt offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. When a man has an omission of semen, he is to bathe himself completely with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. Any clothing or leather on which there is an emission of semen is to be washed with water, and it will remain unclean until evening. If a man sleeps with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them are to bathe with water, and they will remain unclean until evening. When a woman has a discharge and it consists of blood from her body, she will be unclean because of her menstruation for seven days. 
Everyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Anything she lies on during her menstruation will become unclean, and anything she sits on will become unclean. Everyone who touches her bed is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. Everyone who touches any furniture she is sitting on is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. If discharge is on the bed or on the furniture she was sitting on, when he touches it, it will be he will be unclean until evening. If a man sleeps with her and blood from her menstruation gets on him, he will be unclean for seven days, and every bed he lies on will become unclean. When a woman has a discharge of her blood for many days, though it is not the time of her menstruation, or if she has a discharge beyond her period, she will be unclean all the days of her unclean discharge as she is during the days of her menstruation. Any bed she lies on during the days of her discharge will be like her bed during menstrual impurity. Any furniture she sits on will be unclean as in her menstrual period. Everyone who touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. When she is cured of her discharge, she is to count seven days, and after that she will be clean. On the eighth day, she must take two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to sacrifice one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her before the Lord because of her unclean discharge. You must keep the Israelites from their uncleanliness so that they do not die by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for someone with a discharge, a man who has an emission of semen becoming unclean by it, a woman who is in her menstrual period, anyone who has a discharge, whether male or female, and a man who sleeps with a woman who is unclean. Psalm chapter 18, verse 1, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord, in my distress, and I cried to God for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, the foundations of the mountains trembled, they shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils and consuming fire from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He bent the heavens and came down, total darkness beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, dark storm clouds his canopy around him. From the radiance of his presence his clouds swept onward with hail and blazing coals. The Lord thundered from heaven, the Most High made his voice heard. He shot his arrows and scattered them. He hurled bolts of lightning and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless towards him and kept myself from my iniquity. 
So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. With the blameless, you prove yourself blameless. With the pure, you prove yourself pure. But with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. For you rescue an oppressed people, but you humble those with haughty eyes. Lord, you light my lamp. My God illuminates my darkness. With you, I can attack a barricade, and with my God, I can leap over a wall. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord, and who is a rock? Only our God. God, he clothes me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me, and your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me for my steps, and my ankles do not give way. I pursue my enemies and overtake them. I do not turn back until they are wiped out. I crush them and they cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. They cry for help, but there is no one to save them. They cry to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like dust before the wind. I trample them like mud in the streets. You have freed me from the feuds among the people. You have appointed me the head of nations, a people I had not known serve me. Foreigners submit to me, cringing. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. The God of my salvation is exalted. God, he grants me vengeance and subdues people under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I will sing praises about your name. He gives great victories to his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Proverbs 29. One who becomes stiff-necked after many reprimands will be shattered instantly beyond recovery. When the righteous flourish, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, people groan. A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but the one who consorts with prostitutes destroys his wealth. By justice, a king brings stability to a land, but a person who demands contributions demolishes it. A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. An evil person is caught by sin, but the righteous one sings and rejoices. The righteous person knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked one does not understand these concerns. Mockers inflame a city, but the wise turn away anger. If a wise person goes to court with a fool... There will be ranting and raving, but no resolution. Bloodthirsty men hate an honest person, but the upright care about him. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. If a ruler listens to lies, all his officials will be wicked. The poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. A king who judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. A rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a youth left to himself is a disgrace to his mother. When the wicked increase, rebellion increases, but the righteous will see their downfall. Discipline your child and it will bring you peace of mind and give you delight. Without revelation, people run wild, but the one who follows divine instruction will be happy. A small, a servant cannot be disciplined by words, Though he understands, he doesn't respond. 
Do you see someone who speaks too soon? There is more hope for a fool than for him. A servant pampered from his youth will become arrogant later on. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered one increases rebellion. A person's pride will humble him, but a humble spirit will gain honor. To be a thief's partner is to hate oneself, but he hears the curse but will not testify. The fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Many desire a ruler's favor, but a person receives justice from the Lord. An unjust person is detestable to the righteous, and one whose way is upright is detestable to the wicked. Finally, Second Thess- Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we are with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And dear friends, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all as we go into this most wonderful of Lord's Day. He is faithful. He will deliver us. Trust in Him. Good day and Godspeed.